Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another midweek Bible study. Uh, I'm Pastor Brian, I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and uh, so just excited to be able to serve and uh, in the absence of our senior pastor, Pastor Gary, as he's still uh, in transition with uh, the Israel trip with the 450 uh, that went with him. Um, and so uh, it's this night we, we're going to continue. You get you know the, the the privilege of having a part two with me from last week, if you were here. Uh, as we were talking in the book of Colossians, okay? But last week, I actually started with a story about a, about a married couple. You remember that? So, if you were here, uh, so I'm going to tell another story. Same, same couple, right? This married couple. The husband, you know, goes to his doctor and says, Doc, I think my wife is experiencing hearing loss. I think it's some problems, Doc. And he said, listen, here's a couple things you can do. He said, why don't you, you know, choose some, some, some areas of the house in, in relative proximity to where she is to kind of do a test to see if she can hear you. So he gets home, you know, uh, you know, the night of, and he opens the door and says, okay, maybe I'll test it right now, right? So he opens the door and says, hey, honey, what's for dinner? Here's nothing. So he walks down the hallway a little bit. You know, she's in the living room area because he, he can sort of see her off the distance there. He walks down the hallway a little bit. Hey, honey, what's for dinner? So he's getting a little concerned now, right? So he's like... Um, let, let me go around and, and right in front of her and said, hey, honey, what's for dinner? And she said, for the third time, I said chicken. <laughs> so oftentimes, our concern about what's wrong needs to start with us, right? So uh, with that in mind, we're going to continue in uh, the book of Colossians, chapter 3, if you have your Bibles. And uh, we, we were talking about the work of sanctification, uh, the work of sanctification, as God has called us as believers, uh, as Christians, we are, you know, uh, last week I talked about three major doctrines of the Christian faith, the doctrine of justification. We've been saved by grace, uh, God's righteousness, the righteousness of Christ has been applied to our lives. Uh, then we go through the work of sanctification here on earth. Uh, and then we look forward to a future glorification. And Paul gets into each one of those uh, doctrines throughout this chapter, throughout the book of, Glo- of Colossians. And so uh, he goes through this whole series of things that we should be putting off of our life, right? Things that we should be taking off and, and putting off as Christians. And we're going to finish up today and conclude with what he says that we should start putting on. So welcome to uh, What Not to Wear Bible Edition. <laughs> All right. Well, just to recap, again, if you're just joining us uh, for the Bible study, and I'm going to read the scripture and I'm going to pray, but if you're just joining us, last week we talked about, as Paul teaches, that the, you know, our old selves in Christ, we we died. He talked about you being buried with Christ, that your identity is now in Jesus. We are no longer who we used to be. We are Christians. And that term was used, was, was, uh, you know, some would say, well, you know, where in the Bible does it say call yourself Christians? Christians just means Christ-like, little Christs. Right? And we were first called Christians at Antioch. In the book of Acts, we see that. And so it was actually as a pejorative, as it was assigned to Christians at first. But we wear, the bad, we wear it with, as a badge of honor to be called uh, like Christ, you know, those who are like Christ. And so we're Christians. And so we're no longer who we used to be. Our identity is in Christ. The, Paul said, We are hidden in Christ. Who you were is now gone. Uh, our affections and our concerns are now heavenward. So he said, Be heavenly minded. And there's no such thing as being so heavenly minded you're no, of no earthly good. I get the sentiment. Some people say, well, you just bury your nose in your Bible and all you do is pray and, pray and walk around speaking in tongues and all of that type of stuff. And I get what they're saying. 
um, you know, we want to be useful in this life. We want to be relatable. We want to be able to connect with individuals. Uh, but you ought to be heavenly minded. You ought to be extremely heavenly minded, concerned with the things of heaven. All right? And so Paul also gets into this idea of uh, the, the, the death of the sinful practices. So last week we talked about several things uh, out of the Decalogue, right? So if we're looking at our, the, the, the Ten Commandments, Paul actually throughout this book, uh, in, throughout this chapter really, he deals with all of the components of the Ten Commandments. So the first being, you shall have no other gods before me. So, so he listed a first group of sins as he uh, was going through the early part of the chapter, he listed a group of sins, which was, you know, sexual immorality. So we can see that was covered in you should not commit adultery, right? He talked about how covetousness is something that was needed to be put off, right? We can see you shall not covet. Then he said, you know, that you shall not, uh, uh, you know, put off things like, uh, you know, immoral, immoral living, right? Evil desire, passions is what he said. And so all of those things we can see are related to covetousness and idolatry. He said all of these things are related to idolatry. He can, you could sum up all those things. He's going to talk about a second group that we're going to get into of sins that we ought to put off as well. Okay, and so he says, put off these things, put them to death. I heard one preacher say, if, you know, Paul mentioned in Romans chapter 5 that you ought to reckon yourselves to be dead to your sin. Reckon yourselves. It sounds like a southern thing to say, right? I reckon. You know, but reckon yourselves to be dead, and Paul was Southern, but reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, meaning you are to consider yourself no longer available to do the things you used to do. I'm no longer available. So if someone, you know, the scripture says when sinners entice you to go and, and do evil, he said, don't go. I'm no longer available to get involved in dead-end relationships, no longer available. You go to a grave and you ask any dead person to do something. They're not going to respond. They're no longer available. And so too ought the believer be no longer available to do the things that we used to do. God calls us to a standard. As I mentioned last week, God is not antinomian. That means he's not without law. Even though we're not under the law of Moses, under the, under the covenant of grace, under the new covenant, we still have a standard that, has, that God has, has carried over from the moral law that still abides with us. Amen. All right, so that's the reason why I mentioned the Ten Commandments there, but we're going to get into it. So Alistair Begg said this, I like this quote. Alistair Begg said, we are being, we have been saved from the penalty of our sin. We will be saved from the presence of sin, and we are now being saved from the power of sin. And that's what we're, what we're talking about here. As we're putting off these things, the way that you're going to be able to do that successfully is by the power of the Spirit and by the, the instruction of the Word. So that's what we're going to get into. So we're going to pick up with verse 8, if you have your Bibles. Verse 8, if you're there with me, say amen. amen. But now you yourselves are to put off all of these, anger, wrath, Malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and you have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free. But Christ is all and in all, 
Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, even uh, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. We can stop right there. (laughs) That's the end of the law. Just kidding. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter against them. And I can hear all the wives say, amen. (laughs) Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart fearing God. And bondservant will be, uh, that that is another term for slave, but really we're talking about in that time uh, the system of slavery and the idea of slavery was about indentured servitude more so. Uh, it was not a race-based slavery like we saw in history, like we saw in history, like the transatlantic slave trade or slave uh, 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 institution, but it was more, work, you know, employers and employees, okay? So that's what he's talking about here, bond servants and masters. Uh, so it's obey all things and, and uh, in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers. so not just when they're looking, not when they're around, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done and there is no partiality. Let's look to the Lord. Father, in Jesus' name, God, we thank you this evening. God, we are those who we're coming, Lord, with our our hands open, our hearts open, our, our, our minds focused on you saying, Lord, what is it that you would instruct us to do and to be And what do you require of us, Lord? And we want to come with a willing heart, a ready mind to receive that which you've instructed us to do. We know that, Lord, that in and of ourselves, we don't have the capability to do it. We don't have the, 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 the ability within ourselves to carry it out. So we're asking, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us, that you would fill us. Give us the ability to do what we hear and to do and live what we read. Not to be hearers only, but doers of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, as I mentioned, uh, early in the chapter, Paul tells us what our conduct ought to be in light of the fact that we are now Christians and who are living a new life. All right? So, let's get right into what he says that we should continue to put off. So, we read earlier that he said our sexual ethic ought to be renewed that we have a renewed sexual ethic in that marriage is the, is the context in which sexuality is to be expressed between a man and a woman, okay? Uh, moral cleanness, we are to be morally pure and clean in all of our, in all of our motives, motives and, and, and dealings. 
Uh, our desires are not to be wrapped up in covetousness, desiring things that God has not ordained for us. And we are to, to worship God with the singleness of heart, not to involve ourselves in idolatrous ways, not to put anything above our God. So now we go up to that point of chapter of, of, of verse eight, where he says, put off anger, anger. And so that word in the Greek, the word anger is orge, okay, Vi- which means violent passion and abhorrence. Violent passion, a violent disposition and abhorrence. He says, put this off. Next thing he says, wrath or rage related to anger. He says, put off wrath and rage. These are angry outbursts. Angry outbursts. And right now I'm just thinking just purely on being on the highway somewhere, right? You know, in the car, on the freeway, highway. That's usually where angry outbursts can happen, but it can happen in all kinds of other places. Football games, you know, kids' soccer games, bad call ref. Please don't be that parent. Is that you out there? Yeah, please don't be that parent. Um, but angry outbursts. He says, these are, these are uh, uh, outbursts that with the intent to carry out punishment, to punish someone. Malice, it's a deeper intent. Uh, 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 malice, where you can see if, if you go from anger to ra- a wrath and then malice, you see the, the pathology and progression here. And, and he's saying, put this off. Malice is that intent, the intent or desire to do harm, a lust for violence. Jesus equates this sin with murder. Jesus equates this sin with murder because behind the intent to do malice, is a, 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 a logical progression toward wanting to see someone dead. It's a serious sin, malice. You can see where people who have, who hold extreme, different, different and, and extreme political differences get so angry with one another that they, they you know, they would, they would say you, 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 you liberal or you conservative and so angry because of differences in position that they actually have malice towards you. We can see that today. People have malice and ill intent towards someone just simply because you don't agree with them, that you simply want to see them, see harm come to them. The intent behind murder always starts with an anger and a rage that says, I want to see harm done to you because Either my way is better than yours, I am better than you, you are beneath me. You can see how that gets into idolatry. Then he says, put off blasphemy. And by the way, I want to say this. We tend to look at oftentimes sexual sin. It's a very obvious outward sin. Like, hey, if you, listen, stop looking at pornography and stop sleeping with someone who's not your spouse. And that seems to be a very... A, a, a low-hanging fruit of morality that we can point to. At least I don't do that. But then God says, God, you know, God says, just the intent of the heart is where adultery and murder begins, right? And I wanted to point that out because Jesus brought the law to that conclusion. Jesus said, if you look upon a woman to lust, then that is a sin of adultery. Jesus said, if you, if you are angry with your brother without cause, if you say you hate someone, That is the sin of murder. And so I want to make sure that we understand God's standard. Jesus modified and amplified the the, the standard of the law 
under grace, although we're not under law anymore, the standard is not lower, it's actually higher. So I just wanted to say that, not to belabor the point anymore. All right, and so he says, put off blasphemy and slander. Blasphemy, slander, abusive speech, he says, intended to do harm, again, rooted in anger and hatred. Now, as I mentioned, this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He said, if you say to your brother, Reka, Raka, that is like saying, you, 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 you idiot. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm shouting uh, uh, pejoratives and, 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 and uh, put-downs with, with the intent behind it to be, I want to see harm done to you. I want to do verbal harm to you. Blasphemy and slander. Then he says, filthy language. Put this off. So, again, look at the progression. Goes from anger and more intense anger, wrath, rage, malice, and then it becomes speech. So, again, our hearts control what the progression of our actions become when they're not dealt with properly. And you can apply that, whether it's our anger, our lust, our covetousness. You know, illicit desires become a desire to steal and therefore becomes another breaking of another commandment of God. Desiring something that is not mine or that God hasn't given me that leads to theft. So he says, stop it at the level of the heart. Filthy language that is foul, obscene, coarse, profane, crude, or sexually inappropriate language. Language that's just filthy, doesn't meet the standard of God, doesn't reflect God's character. He says, put this off. Then he says, lying, lying, to speak falsely, to deceive, or to speak falsely of someone. The commandments, and, uh, we, as we saw in the Ten Commandments, he says, you should not bear false witness against your neighbor. Not only do we not lie to one another, but we don't lie on one another. Again, we can see, uh, you know, the progression of sin becomes the, the sins that come from the heart, leads to my actions, and then ultimately how I treat other individuals. So what is Paul dealing with? Paul is dealing with sins that deal with our personal conduct as well as our conduct as it relates to how we interact with others. That's why Jesus said, you can hang all the law and the prophets on these two things. What? Love God with all of your heart, your soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Because all, all of what we read here is summarized in those two things. If you love your neighbor, as yourself, you're not going to covet his things. You're not going to sleep with his wife. You're not going to steal from him. You're not going to bear false witness on him. If you love God, you're not going to serve other gods. You're going to put God first. You're going you're to give God his just due. You're going to devote to God in a way that pleases him. You're not going to blaspheme his name. And that becomes the, the thing that Paul is saying that, we, that becomes our focus. Becomes our focus. Let me read this for you. Uh, Here's some some, some scriptures that deal with this thing called anger and why God calls it such a serious sin. Galatians 5 and 20, Paul, Paul calls outbursts of anger a work of the flesh. He lists the works of the flesh. He said the works of the flesh are manifest which are these, uh, and he lists lists a, a various group of things there. But he says, angry outbursts. He calls that a work of the flesh in the same category that he lists idolatry, witchcraft, and heresy. Very serious. Proverbs 15 and 18 says, a wrathful man stirs up strife. 
But he who is slow to anger calms contention. Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a whole city. So the scripture has given us a sense that uh, out of control anger becomes something that we have to, you have to learn to rule. You have to learn to rule over it. Proverbs 22 and 24 says, make no friendship with an angry man. And with a furious man, do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. James 1 and 19, let every man be slow to speak, slow to wrath, or slow to anger, he says, the wrath of man does not accomplish God's will. Ephesians 4 and 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, I mentioned that Ephesians in the last study. Ephesians is actually a parallel book to Colossians. Paul wrote these books at around the same time from a Roman prison. So Ephesians 4 and 31, he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all of the malice. Let it be put away from you. And last one I'll share, 1 John 3 and 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So why did I read those, that, that group of, of, of passages? To One, not to exalt or not to put a premium on anger or to say that anger is worse than any other sin. But just to make the point that Paul makes, he talks about a progression and the danger of when anger is not dealt with at the root of, at, at its root in our hearts. It leads to a pathology of sins that becomes damaging and deadly to relationships in your family, in the church, and for you, in your relationship with God. And so I wrote here that anger is not always sin when directed at sin and injustice. Anger is okay. Anger is an emotion that God expresses. But God has righteous anger. And we can reflect that because we are made in the image of God and we, become, we can become righteously angry or indignant at injustice and sin that shows that we are made in his image. We should be angry when babies are murdered. We should be angry when a world is, sub, is, is subverting the idea of what our women are. That should make us angry. It should make us angry that the world is subverting what marriage is. That should anger us. Not to the point where we want to hurt anybody, but we're angry at the sin. We don't want to do harm to people who don't agree with us. We want to preach and bring the word of God to bear on those things that are our front to our God. Amen? And so we should express anger in the right place. But when it is expressed and when it is directed at people, it becomes a bad pathology. And we ought to uproot it, just like we uproot any other sin. When it's lust, uproot it. Anger, uproot it. Idolatry, uproot it at its source. Uproot it. So, a uh, few, th- I was, uh, well, I was going to share this, but um, just talking about comparing and contrasting the book of Ephesians, and it says some of the same things, but I won't have to go there. I'll move on because I want to make some other points here that I think will be better for us to focus on. So, let's go to verse 9. It says, do not lie to one another 
since you have put off the old man with his deeds. So Paul wraps up his discourse here about what we ought to put off and he proceeds with the series of things that we should now put on. So now we're going to see now not just the don't do's, the not do's, but we're going to see what are the do's. What are the things we ought to put on right now? So let's go on to verse 10. He says, and put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And so he goes right back to this idea of identity. He says, Christ is all and in all. Is Christ all to you tonight? Christ has to be everything to you. And I would even submit to you, if Christ is not everything to you, he's nothing to you. He has to be everything. And our identity is in him above all else. And so here's why Paul mentions that. Here's why Paul mentions that. He's in all of you. He says, our earthly distinctions, he mentions Jews and Greeks, and he mentions Jews, uh, Jews and Gentiles, and barbarians, Scythian, slave and free. What is he saying there? Is our earthly distinctions become secondary in Christ, and Christ must be preeminent in all things so that our earthly distinctions do not become a barrier or point of division so as to eclipse the beauty of Christ, who is our identity and our sure foundation. If we come into the space and to the church, as Paul is dealing with the, the, the groups of people that were in the church in his day, if we come into our space and say, hey, this is black church, this is Italian church, this is Latino church, and if we come into a space exalting our differences in the space, then what that ends up doing is making Christ look a little subservient to all of our identities. Amen. But he said, let Christ be all and in all. And does that mean that Christ does away with your distinctions? Does that mean that you cease to be who you are in the flesh? Does that mean you cease to be who you are naturally? You cease to be what God made you? No. I read in the book of Re Revelation that there's going to come a time, John, Re John the Revelator said, that I looked out and I saw a number of men that, that no man could number, of every tribe and every nation and every tongue worshiping before the throne of the Lamb. He didn't do away with our distinctions. He just told you to put them in their proper place. Put them in their proper place. Don't come in here exalting the distinctions. Let Christ be preeminent in all things. Christ the preeminence. Says, we are commanded to let go. Now here's what he says here. Watch this. We are commanded to let go of grievances based on racial and social animus. Isn't that a word for today? All complaints, he said, Paul said in, in, in thir uh, verse 13, he said we ought to be bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. He said all of your complaints must be addressed with forgiveness and grace. And usually the complaints we're talking about are historical complaints. Not complaints that, you know, are actually in the present of something I've done to you yesterday, 
or something I did to you today. We're not complaining about that kind of stuff. The world wants us complaining, and some of the, the church today is even joining in on those, those conversations and wanting us to complain about stuff that have nothing to do with us. Come on, people. Nothing to do with us. Complaining about stuff about, listen, I'm complaining because people who look like you did something to people who used to look like me, and now I have a complaint. Where does that even make sense? Where does that make sense? Paul says, do away with those things. Do away with those things. He says, all all of these historical issues that have to do with group dynamics, do away with them. So, while he mentions Greeks and Jews, that was a social conflict going on between Greeks and Jews, because the Greeks had this idea that they were better than everybody else. The the Greeks had this air of superiority. We were culturally superior. Our language was just so much more developed and and we were just so much more advanced than the rest of you people. We looked down, the Greeks looked down upon everyone else. We had such culture. And then the Jews looked down on the Gentiles and the Samaritans who were half-Jews. They looked down upon them because our religion and our relationship to God makes us better than you, right? And then the barbarians and Scythians, the, the barbarians were these groups of nomads who, who, who were foreigners in, the, in, this, in this land, and they, they didn't speak the language of the Greeks or the Jews or the Gentiles that were there, and they looked like barbarous people, and they actually got the name barbarian because they, to look to the people when they spoke, looked like they were just saying bar, 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 bar. <laughs> That's how they got their name. The Scythians were a, a group of nomadic horse riders who were, who were said to be the ancestors of the Mongol Empire, the Mongol folks. And they were known to be thugs. They were known to be savage, brutal killers who ravaged and pillaged and raped. And they were doing everybody wrong, just terroristic, violent oppression. And they would ravage the countryside, probably doing all the barbarians wrong, doing all the Jews and Gentiles wrong, and everybody had a complaint against everybody. And then guess what? And he also said slaves and free. The slaves, as I mentioned, that was an economic and social interaction. The free people might look down upon slaves because they were a lower class, you know, but simply because they were working for somebody else, they didn't have as much, and so they looked down upon them. So here are all these groups of people having these issues. And here's how Paul responds. Paul responded by saying, let's talk about reparations, right? Is that how he responded? <laughs> Paul responded by saying, let's go ahead and let's, let's use this, this, this framework, this legal framework called critical race theory so we can see how just how wrong some of the Greeks were. And all the Greeks were just inherently wrong, right? And we should, we should talk about how wrong they did everybody. That's how he responded, right? No. He responded by saying, Christ is all, and in you all. And there is no more distinctions that we ought to exalt, and you ought to respond with all of your complaints with the love of Christ and forgiveness that is only given by the power of the Holy Spirit and the true spirit of reconciliation. Amen. Amen. Let me tell you this. And I'm going to get off this subject. Race grievance. You're laughing, but I'm serious. (laughs) Race grievance and racial finger pointing based on historic social issues that did not involve people today who weren't even alive during the offenses in question are non-Christian ideas. This is not Christian. Not Christian. 
They're non-Christian ideas designed to breed hatred and division. Hatred and division. People who promote these ideas are at best Christians who are in desperate need of sanctification. At worst, they're non-believers who need the gospel. And so, when we look at this stuff that's going on in our world, we have to say as the church that we need to stand up with truth, and our response needs to be biblical. Biblical. So let's keep it right there. All right, so we're going to move right along. Here's a few things that Paul says that we should be putting on, the righteous garments that we're to put on. So I, I mentioned some things there, but let me put them in a, in a group here. So he says, put on the new man. What's the new man? Well, you have an old man. An old man. That's not the, 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 your husband's, ladies. I'm not talking about <laughs> But you have, a, you have an old man, that was your man of sin. That was your sinful desire, your sinful nature. He says, now put on the new man. We're putting on Christ. Romans chapter 13, uh, verse 14, Paul says, put on Christ. Philippians 2 and 5, he said, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, in that he humbled himself. Humble yourself. Put that on. Then he says, put on tender mercies. Okay, tender mercies, a heart of compassion, favor, grace, and mercy. Think about grace and mercy. When, you, when you've been, you know, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. When you've been shown mercy and you truly understand the depth of the value of mercy, then you learn to show it to other people because you realize how thirsty you are for it. You need mercy, so he said you ought to show it. In fact, Jesus said also, he said, whatever standard you use to judge other people, that same standard is going to be measured back to you. So if you're unmerciful, you will get none. He says, put on kindness. Kindness, that is goodness, gentleness, and righteousness that says that you will deal with your brother in a kind way. You will deal in a kind way. Then he says, put on humility. Put on humility. That is lowliness and modesty, not thinking more highly of yourself than you should. Not thinking more highly of yourself than you should. Then he says, put on meekness. Put on meekness. Mild, gentle, gentle heartedness, not willing to show aggression even if you feel like the other person deserves it. Meekness is not weakness, it is power under control knowing that the one who needs to give vengeance is the Lord. What did the Bible say? That vengeance is mine, says the Lord. If you know who's in control, you don't have to fend for yourself, and you don't have to take vengeance, you will let the Lord handle it, because he handles it much better than you anyway. No one will slide, no one gets off. Guess what, all sin is against God. Even the sin against you is a sin against God, and God will not let any sinner slide. He will let no sin off the hook. And your goal and your hope is that whoever sinned against you would come under the power of the blood of Jesus Christ and their sins be forgiven. And that's where we got to get. I know you don't want to see your enemy saved, but that's the point where we have to get to a meekness that says, I want to see the person who's done me wrong saved under the blood of Jesus Christ. Then he says, long suffering, long suffering, that is patience that's willing to bear with others in their faults. Again, he's he's telling us that our interactions with others becomes, we get away from the sinful inclinations of the flesh that told us that we ought to do others the way that we feel they ought to be done, you know, by giving them what they deserve. 
But the Bible tells us that we ought to put on long suffering, and that we ought to put up with our brother. That doesn't mean we don't hold people accountable. That, means, that doesn't mean we don't bring truth to bear on something that someone has done, a sin, a transgression, maybe against you. Doesn't mean we don't bring truth to that situation, but we suffer long with our brothers and sisters. We suffer long. And guess what? These are fruits of the spirit that God wants you to display in your life. And if you're not fellowshipping and engaging with the believers and bringing yourself, then bringing yourself to serve and bringing yourself in the, in the midst of the, the fellowship of believers, then you're never going to grow. That's why it's important. Scripture says, forsake not the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Last thing he says to put on, this was from verse 14. He says, above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. This is what holds it all together, the bond. This is the glue that holds it together. He says, put on love, agape, agape love, which says that that it's it's a, a love that is filled with grace that loves without condition. Love filled with grace that loves without condition. Now you're saying, you're looking at all these things, these are pretty lofty goals. Like how, we, how do we do all of this, God? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's only going to be done through the power of the Spirit. Here's what he said, look, look, look at the first thing he said, verse 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were also called in one body and be thankful. First thing you got to do is allow God's peace to rule in your heart. How do you do that? Well, Isaiah The the book of Isaiah chapter 26 verse 3 says, he will keep you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. Get in God's word. Saturate your heart and mind in God's word. Oh, I know where I got that. Verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. In the book of Ephesians, which is that parallel book, he says the same thing, but he says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourself in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which is a synonymous thing. Being filled with God's Word and, be, and, and being enriched with God's Word is synonymous with being filled with the Spirit, because what's happening, that word filled, is, 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 we, we, we understand it in this sense. In the, uh, one passage of Scripture, it talked about how, I believe it was in the book of Acts, that the men were filled with madness. Meaning they were taken over by a spirit of madness. They were out of control. What the scripture says to us on the converse is that you are to be under control, not drunk with wine, but filled with the spirit under control. Yield it to the Holy Spirit in everything you do by being filled with his word in your heart, filled with his word in your mind, and given over to the things that God has called you to do. Yielding to them, submitting to God, letting the Holy Spirit have his way. And then if he wants to fill you and do all the things he wants to do with you and use you and use you to serve and endow you with gifts, he's going to do that in as much as you are continually yielded to him. Amen? So he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so whatever you do in the name of the Lord, do it with thanksgiving. You also have to have a heart of thanksgiving. And the Bible says, in all things, give thanks. Does that mean you're thankful for every single thing that happens to you? I'm not thankful because I got in a car crash. I'm thankful to God because in spite of it all, he's still on the throne. I'm thankful to God because in spite of it all, I still have grace and I still have my security of my salvation. I still have the promise of heaven. I can rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ. Not of the circumstance happens. We rejoice in spite of circumstance. Joy is this. Joy is not rejoicing in a circumstance that's unpleasant. Joy is knowing who is in control in spite of what's going on. Amen. Amen. So, 
as I come to a close, I draw us to a close, and I know I speak fast. I know I share a lot. But I'm going to share this last group of things that I feel like would help us. And so, how do we kill sin in the flesh? That's what we're talking about, sanctification. So how do we do it? We've, we've talked about a lot of things. I'm just kind of bringing it to a summary. Number one, occupy your mind with the things of God. Service to God. Doctrine. Fellowship. Communion and prayer. So it's kind of like what Pastor Gary's talking about in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Fellowship, word, breaking bread, communion. Doing the things that God has called us to do as believers. Saturating your mind with those things. That's, that's keeping your mind on things that are things that are heavenward. Number two, confess to God and repent of known sin and confess his word to your sin. What do I mean by that? If you're dealing with the things we talked about, anger, wrath, and rage, if you're dealing with the lust and sexual immorality in our lives, pornography viewing and things like that, dealing with immoral aspects of our heart, lying and things like of that nature, dealing with putting other things before God, he says, confess to God. God, I, this is sin. Be honest about your, the, what God's assessment of your life is. God, this is sin. I know that you died for this sin. I don't want it anymore. I want to be made more like you. Lord, take this sin. Lord, give me your word in exchange for this sin. Give me truth in exchange for lies. Give me the joy of the Lord in exchange for this sin. I don't want it anymore. Be honest with God. Do business with the Lord. Amen? So he says, come to him and repent of known sin. Third thing, reflect often on God's hatred for sin and cultivate that hatred. When we talked about last week that the wrath of God, the scripture says, is coming upon the, the sons of disobedience because of these sins. God, that's how God feels about sin. He hates it. He hates it so much that the wrath that he's pouring out on the sons of disobedience, he poured out on his, own, his very own son on the cross. Cultivate that hatred for your sin. God, you hate this and I want to hate it too. Then he, then he says, walk in the spirit. Walk in the spirit by pursuing God in personal prayer, the word, worship, praise, and thanksgiving to God, yielding yourself daily to the Holy Spirit. Be filled, be given over, be dominated by the things of the spirit. Give yourself to them daily, spiritual discipline. Get down there before the Lord in your early, in early in the morning. Have a time you set aside that you meet with God. God, I'm not going to miss this time. Get down before your, your bedside at night. As David said, Lord, I, I, I meditated upon you in the night watches. And I, and I sought you early in the morning. Have a time that you're meeting with God and you're showing God. This, God, you're, you're not, I'm not, I'm not, you're, I'm not doing this because I want to be found as special in your sight. Because you are so impressed by me doing this. But because I am desperately in need of you and I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Amen? Willing to do whatever it takes. You have to be desperate for God. Then he says, delight yourself in God. Delight yourself in God. You must see God. If you want to see your sin, the, the, the allure and the appeal of sin in your life diminish, then fix your eyes on the Lord to see him as most beautiful. Desire him. Delight in him. See him as beautiful. Psalm 27, David said this, one thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord. 
to inquire within his temple, for in the time of trouble he will hide me in his pavilion, and in the secret of his tabernacle he will hide me, and he will set me upon a rock. God will offer you shelter from the, the, the lust and the, and the allure of your sin if you will just hide in him. If you hide in him. Then he says this. Psalm 73. Who have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire but you. Delight in the Lord. Saturate your heart in the word of God, as we already said. Read it, study it, apply, rinse, repeat. Read, study, apply, rinse, repeat. Fellowship with believers and confess to one another. Fellowship with believers and confess to one another. The scripture says we ought to be confessing our faults to one another. Get with people who love you and you know, and you know have your best interest at heart and say, listen, my brother, sister, I'm struggling. Pray for me about this. I'm struggling. Then, then, you're, then you're, you know, if you're concerned about, you know, not sharing your personal business with individuals, then you just use some discernment. There's people you share with, people you don't share with. But if you have that person that, that you know that the Lord has sent to you that is in your life to help you grow, share and confess. Then he says, change your access to the things or relationships that easily trip you up. Those things that you know, if it's, if it's what we're watching on the internet, change your access. If it's a relationship that you know is not honoring to God, change your access. If it's places that you go that know trips you up and leads you right back to your sin, change your access. Amen? The last thing I'll mention here. Remember the cross. Remember the cross and the price that Christ paid for sin. The cross was beautiful. We, we, wear some, we wear them, we, we, place, we place them in different places, but the cross was also the, the ugliest thing that could have happened because our, our sin was so ugly. So ugly that Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, the Messiah, bore our sin on the cross and the Father could not even behold the sin that was upon him. The Father turned his face away because it was so ugly. He paid that price. He, he, he suffered a pain that was so intense that no other human being could ever suffer the extent that he, that he uh, suffered. There were other people crucified, sure, but no one was crucified who was sinless. He who knew no sin became guilty of sin on our behalf. And if we constantly put our thoughts on what the, the price that Christ paid for our sin, it would help us to view our sin differently. But not that God is waiting to hammer you or judge you in the moment that you do sin. But I hope you would see it as a picture of how much his love for you was poured out. And that God, you love me so much. You gave me the ability to conquer this sin. And it's through you that I can do all things. And you confess that to your sin. Amen? Amen. So let's, look, let's look to the Lord. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you tonight. God, we rejoice in you, God, our Savior. We rejoice in you because you've given us the power of your Holy Spirit to conquer the flesh. And Lord, we know that in this life, as Paul said, that we, we recognize our wretchedness and our sinfulness in the flesh. We've been delivered from the power of sin, but we realize that we will continue to deal with it in the flesh in this life. But we have the earnest of the Spirit. We have the hope of your word that we can live a victorious life. Help us to live consistently running in your direction, running to the cross, running to your arms as a faithful father who's always there, willing to embrace his sons and daughters. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.